Hello, everyone, and welcome to Be Heard Talk, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, Asada Shakur, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, we discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and we give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and we will read them throughout this show. My name is Selena Hill, and I'm the founder of Be Her Talk, and I'm super excited to be here with you all to discuss the biggest stories of the week, like Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey buying Jay-Z's title to the George Floyd Policing Act, which aims to enforce law enforcement accountability. We'll actually unpack this new legislation and question whether it goes far enough to protect our communities with our Featured guest, Candace Hollingsworth, who is the national co-chair of Our Black Party, later on in the second half of our show. Please support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash beherdtalk. Your support through a small donation will help us continue to support and amplify the issues that are important to you. So, without further ado, on today's show, we will be joined by Be Her Talk correspondent, Evan Mastronardi, who is also the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash. How's it going, Evan? It's going well. Thanks for the shout out. Yes, I'm Evan Mastronardi. You can follow me at at underscore Mastronardi, co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash podcast website, Space for Multidimensional Men. Also ranked the 10th best uh, clubhouse for LGBTQ members, uh, stand, neither stand or the co-founder and former uh, co-host to be heard, or I happens to be a member of the community, but we love the support. So it means a lot to us. Just want to give a shout out. And love thanks that for disclaimer having me as there, always. Evan. Love that <laughs> disclaimer. Um, we also have with us a very special guest host, Oni Higgins, who is an award-winning multimedia professional and TV host. Love the yellow. How's it going, Oni? Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's great. It's Sunday, so I can't complain. Ab absolutely, absolutely. And shout out to all those who are watching, including Michael R. Hustler, who is joining from the Purple State. I wonder which one. Uh, shout out to those. all those who are watching. Oh, and, uh, and we support and we love all of the love. Thank you for watching every Sunday. We, we definitely support that and appreciate that. So, Without further ado, I'm actually going to throw it over to Oni, who is going to spearhead our news roundup and get to some of these important stories. So take it away, Oni. Yes, yeah, super excited. So the news roundup is the segment where we unpack the biggest, most impactful stories for the week and the stories that make you laugh, cry, or even get blocked on social media for cursing <laughs> out Republicans for waging a war against Mr. Potato Head. First up, you know, Square buys Title. Title, the exclusive streaming service co-founded by Jay-Z, has been sold to Square, the tech company that developed Cash App and that was co-founded by Twitter CEO Jack 
Dorsey. Now, Square purchased title for $297 million, and Jay-Z will now sit on Square's boards. So, you know, he's out here making some money moves. Jack Dorsey announced the deal on Twitter, revealing that title subscribers will have an entirely new listening experiences and new complimentary revenue streams. Now, Dorsey also tweeted that the deal began from a simple idea, finding new ways for artists to support their work. He added in another tweet, given what Square has been able to do for sellers of all sizes and individuals through Cash App, we believe we can now work for artists to see the same success for them and for us. So let me know what you think. I think you think that was a good deal. Why or why not? I mean, I th if if it helps independent artists get paid more streamlined and you know so many artists are losing money during this time because of the pandemic because we forget how much of art artist revenue especially music is through live performances so you know title uh square is a uh virtual cash sending app if there's a way that they can use their technology and their expertise to help independent artists get money faster promote them better during this time where they can't perform live i'm just happy about that i mean uh jay-z is already a billionaire um i'm happy for him but at this point the capitalist standpoint of it is just rich people getting richer so good for him for making a profit but i'm more uh happy about the effect this could have on the artists yeah Selena title has reportedly been struggling. How do you think this deal will change the music streaming service? So honestly, I think it's gonna really push title into the blockchain um, space. And the reason why is because Square founder um, and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey has been a huge proponent of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. So I would not be surprised if um, all of a sudden title started getting more into NFTs, which allows artists to certify ownership for photos, videos, and other mm -hmm. digital content. Now, NFT technologies could, what they do is they track um, the province of auto, uh, autographs, memorabilia, everything that mm -hmm. make it uh, like valuable for fans. So I really, I would not be surprised if you see uh, more of that happening. And I think Jay-Z has also been, you know, definitely dipping into the blockchain space as well. You know, so that's what I see. That's what I could foresee happening. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. I'm excited to see where it's going to go stream wise. We've seen even during the pandemic with everyone, uh, all a lot of music going viral on TikTok and that including uh, stream. So we'll see how it goes. That's so a next good point. Up, yeah, for sure. So next up, Illinois City will distribute $25,000 in reparations for Black residents. Yes, you heard that right. We're getting some reparations. Now, Evanston, uh, Illinois, a city just north of Chicago, is giving out reparations to Black residents to use on housing. Now, starting this spring, the reparations will be given out in $25,000 increments funded by a 3% tax on legal recreational marijuana sales. So in total, $10 million will be given out over the next 10 years in an attempt to repay Black residents for the wrongs and losses incurred by generations of systematic racism. Selena, what do you think about the news? Well, first of all, it's about time. We've right. been talking about reparations since 1865. I'm still waiting, I'm still waiting for my 40 acres and a mule. Um, you know, so many other 
Uh, minority groups have received some form of reparations, Native Americans, which continue to receive uh, millions of dollars from our government, uh, the Japanese, Japanese Americans we've seen, and even, even Jewish Americans. So I feel like the fact that, um, you know, American descendants of slavery never received anything. And on top of never receiving reparations for literally building this country, we've suffered from a number of different um, policies and legislation that have held us back, including redlining. And that's why um, in Evanston, Illinois, they're really pushing for this $25,000 in reparations to go towards black residents for housing. And to because the reason why is because um, a number of them were designated to a community called the Fifth Ward, where they it was underfunded and under-resourced and people like back in the 60s and 70s didn't even have access to water and electricity. So they were literally subjugated to redlining as so many other black Americans across this country. So it's about time that, you know, one city has stepped up. And, you know, my hope is that a number of other cities and governments and officials will step up and pass reparations. It's about time. Yes, I definitely agree with you. Evan, what do you think? I think this is a very important first step. And to be clear, neither this step nor any of the other efforts, the other demographics that Selena mentioned are not necessarily enough to contribute to all the uh, oppression of those groups. But the fact that reparations towards Black Americans hasn't even been addressed at all on a federal level is horrific. And I'm glad that Evanston stepped up. I do think that this shows the precedent that we may need to rely as a society and, you know, people who care about these issues, that the local government may be uh, a more likely way to go to make progress because the federal government is not going to do this anytime soon. Local governments with hopefully more progressive leaders can have more direct funding towards specific groups who have been oppressed by society. And it's going to put a lot of progressivism to the test. When we have these quote-unquote liberal cities that are run by Democrats, like New York and other places, why, why not pass this? Why not put a tax on recreational marijuana or a tax on you know the super rich to pass this? I think it's also going to be a real test about the people's values to see if they back it up. But I think locally, this is how we're going to get it done, at least uh, the first step. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would definitely agree. And just to chime in, Evan, um, we're getting a lot of comments. I know Michael R. Hasler says reparations have mm -hmm. to start on a local basis nationwide. Right. Um, I think we would definitely tend to agree. And I think that's exactly what Evan's point was mm -hmm. about it starting locally. And then Stanley Fritz, friend to BE, I mean, friend to Black, uh, I'm saying Black Enterprise, Be Heard Talk, of course. Um, and former co-host says, so happy this is happening, but we need reparations yeah. throughout the U.S. Stanley, yeah. we agree. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I think Illinois is the first. Hopefully it's the first of many. Hopefully right. all this hop on board. Um, and, you know, reparations don't just start within housing. You have to look into schools within inner communities. Mm -hmm food pantries, organizations, like all of that, all of that matters. So definitely excited to see where it's going to go from Illinois uh, passing this to possibly other states hopping on board for sure. Mm -hmm. So next up, Amanda Gorman says she was tailed by security guards 
on her way, actually by a security guard on her way home. Now, Amanda Gorman, the youth poet who performed at the 2021 presidential inauguration revealed on Instagram that she was followed by a security guard who told her that she looked suspicious while she was walking home Friday night. Her post reads, a security guard told me on my walk home tonight, he demanded if I live there because you look suspicious. I showed my keys and buzzed myself into my building. He left, no apology. Gorman wrote in her, in a post on her verified Instagram account. And she added, this is a reality of black girls. One day you're called an icon, the next day a threat. Lena, were you surprised that America's youngest inaugural poet who earned a national acclaim at President Biden's inauguration was subjected to racial power? Absolutely not. You know, statistically, Black men are approximately 2.5 times more likely to die at the hands of police over a lifetime compared to white men. And Black women are about 1.4 times more likely to be killed by, complete, by police than white women. So I mean, the statistics don't lie. The fact that, you know, black and brown men are not only being racially, uh, black and brown women and men are not only being racially profiled, but killed. I mean, it doesn't matter if you yeah. happen to be a cop yourself, you happen to be an elected official, you happen to be a former EMT worker, you happen to be a father, you happen to be taking a jog, you happen to be a 12 year old, does not matter. It does not matter. Once the uniform comes off, once you step off that stage, you are nothing but a black person. And yes. unfortunately, you know, you know, they're calling us threats. We all we always felt threatened. We always felt threatened. But I want to say, you know, Amanda Gorman, she actually followed up with another tweet that I thought was so prolific. She said, and I quote, I am a threat, a threat to injustice, to mm -hmm. inequality to ignorance. Anyone who speaks the truth and walks with hope is an obvious and fatal danger to the powers that be, a threat and proud. Thank you, Amanda. Mm -hmm. I love Definitely. Yeah, Evan, what do you think it will take for black women to feel protected in America? It will take absolute systemic change, structural change. It will take uh, white people to actually have awareness of this issue. I mean, there are countless instances of this. Henry Louis Gates being arrested outside his own home. Uh, Obama in in one of the uh, Netflix uh, movies about him showed a situation where uh, he was stopped when he went to Columbia. Um, you know, Chappelle, Dave Chappelle, my favorite comedian, has that joke that he, when he moved into his new house after getting some success, he thought it was too nice for himself because he knew that he knew what the reality is of him going home to his own house. So this is why comments like, you know, the quote unquote, shut up and dribble uh, BS is, is so uh, ridiculous, ignorant and offensive. It's like, it doesn't matter who you are. It uh, doesn't matter what you do. doesn't matter how famous you are. You cannot take off your skin. And when your skin is perceived as a threat, uh, these situations will continue to arise. Yeah, I agree with everything you both said. I want to, I hope that she can follow up with us to keep us posted on what happened after this. Like, is she going to maybe not file charges, but is the officer going to be reprimanded? even him following her home, like that's a scary situation. You know what I mean? So I definitely yeah. hope 
story gets updated throughout, you know, the week and the months to know what happened after this. Oni, if I can, because I agree with you, and a number of people agree in the comments as well. Uh, Michael R. Hasler actually left a comment via LinkedIn. He says, talking while black, walking while black. Does not matter. We've seen, you know, people, black people harassed on planes, <laughs> riding in first class. It does yeah. not matter. You know, as Evan said, it's all about skin. And this country has a lot of work to do when it comes to healing uh, the racial injustice that still exists mm -hmm. in the fabric of our yeah. democracy. Yeah, definitely agree there. So next up, Drake seemingly admits to sleeping with Kim Kardashian in his new song. Now, Drake released new music on March 5th that takes a nod at Kanye West and the song Wants and Needs. He rapped, yeah, I probably go link to Yeezy. I need me some Jesus. But as soon as I start confessing my sins, he wouldn't believe us. While Kardashian was not mentioned by name, many fans took the lyric to mean that she allegedly hooked up with Drake. Now, as we know, West and Drake have been feuding since 2018 when rumors circulated that Drake and Kardashian had been dating. Now, Evan, did you interpret the lyrics as a reference to the rumors uh, between Drake and Kim K that they slept together? I mean, sometimes artists just want the the notion of it to be in the air. It doesn't yeah. have to be verified. The notion just creates beef. But, you know, I told Selena with things like this, I sound like an old man. I really don't care. I don't yeah. care who sleeps. I don't care who sleeps with who. It doesn't matter to me. But what I will say, because, you know, this is going back to what I do with Let's Not Be Trash. I don't like women kind of always being passed around as like leverage between men as as creating beef like women's bodies who slept with who it's like i have one over you because i slept with this lady or someone who you dated it's like it's very antiquated and it's pretty misogynist that we still now have artists that throw at other men uh the women they had sexual encounters with just like the sex with this person uh you know it, it it's really objectifying and it i, I think that it's something in our culture that I just think it needs to stop. Yeah, you mentioned something important, culture. That's, I think that that's just rap culture in general. That's what it's about, unfortunately. Um, so hopefully they'll work that out. But uh, Selena, will this hurt or uh, help Drake? What do you think? I think it's only going to help Drake. The fact that we're talking about this lyric and the song What's and Needs um, from his new EP. Boom. I mean, it helps. I mean, honestly, Drake is like the mean king. Like all of his lyrics, you know, intentionally turn into memes or become mantras. Like, you know, think about um, started from the bottom while we here. That became a mantra. Okay, look, Drake is brilliant at what he does. If you ask me, he is definitely fueling uh, the rumor mill. Um, it, he wants the attention. Look, he's also the one who said, you know, I think your idols become your rivals. He wants all the smoke with yay. And I love Drake. So, hey, do it. Go for it. I definitely agree with you. You took the words out of my mouth. I think that he just did it for attention. You know, the new EP, more streams. Now everyone's talking about it. They're going to go listen. It just worked out perfectly for him. So I don't see that feud going anywhere anytime soon. Like, let's see what Kanye responds with first. So next up, Republicans are freaking out over Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head. Conservatives are fanning out on Fox News and other right-winged media to spread lies about these childhood mainstays. 
mainstays being canceled due to imaginary liberal censorship. Now, Dr. Seuss, the issue comes down to the children book Arthur's estate deciding not to continue publishing some of the most obscure titles because they include racist imagery that runs against the children's author's own lifelong commitment to progressive politics. They also become upset at Hasbro for that they announced that it would drop from, that the name would drop Mr. from the Mr. Potato Head brand name in order to be more ex inclusive and also all could feel the welcome in the Potato Head world. So Evan, why are Republicans freaking out over Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss? Because Republicans never want to do real work. And a lot of Democrats don't want to do real work either. They would rather, we saw that for four years. We saw that when they thought Obama wearing a tan suit was a scandal and taking Michelle out for a date was a scandal. This is what they do. They try to find all these side issues to get not just their base, but some people who, you know, think we're getting too much of a politically correct world riled up and distracted from the fact that they didn't even support a stimulus bill just now. That wasn't even going to be enough anyway. I mean, they, they're going to put, put this as like an attack on our values and our culture or something BS. But yeah. the truth is, I, I, I don't know when Mr. Potato Head and, and his or, or their gender mattered as of yesterday until someone made an issue out of it. I know when someone not being able to afford rent mattered and people losing their jobs because of the coronavirus mattered. So they can keep trying that. Listen, that goes back to like the Cardi B with the WAP while they were like on Twitter making all yeah. these statements about it instead of giving the American people COVID help and relief. Right. They were over there tweeting, so I cannot. But Selena, will the Republican fight against Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss help Republican efforts to win over voters? What do you think? Honestly, sadly, I do think it's going to help them win over their voters because uh, their voters subscribe to the same antiquated thinking that they do, which is why they keep getting elected. Um, look, Republicans are afraid of progress. The more progress we have, the more they lose. And we saw that in Georgia, right, where Stacey Abrams led the effort to mobilize people to the polls. And the more people that came out, the more they voted against Republicans. So they use any tactic, any strategy that they could to, you know, conjugate this culture war on things that, you know, really should not be issues they're paying attention to in order to continue to, you know, feed their constituents what they want. If you ask me, they talk to middle America who happens to be older white folks who are, you know, conservative. If it was me, I don't want my elected officials talking about WAP and Mr. Potato Head. I want them passing exactly. the stimulus bill. I want them, you know, helping out to solve COVID. So right. I'll the leave it there. Out of whack. The priorities is out of whack for this one, for sure. We're not worried about Mr. Potato Head at all. You know so, what? Just real, real quick, Oni. Uh, yeah. Prince Anson left a comment from Facebook. Prince says there is a Mr. Potato Head as well as a Miss Potato Head. This right. Is I forgot about Miss Potato Head. I forgot about that. So I don't. So now that their potatoes are going gender neutral, I don't. I don't get it. I don't get it. It makes no sense. But I guess. I guess. So six nine split in Lil Nas X DMs. Six nine, the twenty four year old rapper known as a snitch, shared a homophobic, now deleted social media post 
earlier this week and was called out for it by Little Nas X. Now, 6ix9ine reposted a screenshot of an article headline reading, China makes COVID-19 anal swaps mandatory for foreigners on Instagram and added the caption, Little Nas X has entered the chat. Now, in response, Little Nas X went on TikTok to expose 6ix9ine by showing a screenshot of unanswered DMs from 6ix9ine. Gonna be in your city soon, what you doing, LOL. He allegedly wrote in a upside with a upside down smiley face emoji and red heart emoji. Now some interpreted the DMS flirting, others just love seeing the rapper get caught up. Now 6ix9ine responded with a video where he shows that there are no messages between the two of them, but since you can now unsend DMs on Instagram, many people aren't buying it. Evan, Selena, who do you think won this battle? Look, you cannot out-troll a troll. No, Lil Nas X, back in the days when he was a barb, like, he mastered the internet. Like, if you even think about his song, Old Country Road, it was, you know, he he talked about how he was obsessed with going viral, and he made a song that would speak to the zeitgeist of the current moment and Gen Z, and he did that. Look, continue giving him fodder, and he's going to come for you. I love it because 6ix9ine also is like troll in chief. So to see those two go at it, like, I don't, look, I'm here for it. It's entertaining. And, I, you know, shout out to Nas X for, you know, clapping back at 6ix9ine who was trying to, you know, shame him or make a homophobic comment. I agree. What do you think of it? Yeah. Like I said earlier, battle's a strong word for what that was. I mean, like, what take over an ether were, were battles. I don't know what this is. These are dueling DM slides. But, you know, I props to Lil Nas X. And like Selena said, he worked hard. You know, I don't, he used to, for those who remember LimeWire, he used to put his song, Old Town Road, under different titles so people would actually download it by accident and still get it. And for anybody who used LimeWire, that would happen sometimes. Sometimes someone would put their own song under a different title. And he did that with Old Town Road, which was really smart. And a guy with that type of ingenuity, and I mean, we've already seen Lil Nas X just not take anything homophobic. You know, even back, um, at that HBO show where, you know, Kevin Hart didn't seem to be as sensitive to why it mattered that he came out publicly. He immediately had a comeback and it wasn't even a nasty one. He just was straight up. So all he did is show receipts. Good for him. I like that energy. Yeah. I hope that the battle or whatever this is between them two, I hope that it actually stops here. Like, I don't want to see anything else. Like six, nine, just don't respond and go about your business and leave it at that. I want to see them put it on wax. I want to see them wrap it out. I, back to 106, you know, one, remember 106 in Park when he used to have the rap battles? Mm-hmm. I want to see that. I want to see it. I'm here for it. Rappers, so what are we going to hear? What are we excited to I hear? I like both of their music. Oh, really? Mm-mm. I'm like, you can keep it. <laughs> you can keep it. So I like Lil Nas X. <laughs> you said not Nas X? I like Lil Nas X music, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I only know like the Old Town Road song, so it's just like, what? What are they gonna wrap it out about? I don't know. I guess that's just my opinion. I'm sure everybody else will love to hear it, but the trolling is cool. But I hope that that battle right there just stays there. <laughs> no one responds. But that's definitely um, that's going to be a wrap for the news roundup. Make sure that you tune in every week to catch the most impactful stories of the week. Thank you so much, Oni. Great job. I had so much fun talking about these stories. But now it's start, you know, it's time to talk about something 
a little bit more serious and way more impactful. Last week, House Democrats passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is the most ambitious effort in decades to overhaul policing nationwide. The bill is named in honor of the Black Father, whose killing by police in Minnesota last year sparked demonstrations around the world. The George Floyd Police Justice and Policing Act of 2021 aims to ban racial profiling, overhaul qualified immunity for police, ban the use of chokeholds, hold police accountable, change the culture of law enforcement, and build trust between the law and Black communities. It was first approved last summer only to stall in the then Republican-controlled Senate after the debate over legislation turned into a political liability for Democrats as Republicans seized on the calls by some activists and progressives to defund the police, um, arguing that that was the intent of this bill. Meanwhile, critics on the left argue that the George Floyd for Policing Act does not go far enough to protect black communities, noting that it gives millions of dollars to police and grants. They also argue that although police have banned chokeholds, police can still kill people using tasing, kneeling, punching, suffocating, the list goes on. Furthermore, police can show up and attempt to stop crimes but what is being done to, to address the underlying issues that cause crime, which is poverty, lack of resources, and lack of education? And if you think about it, George Floyd, he died because he could not afford a pack of cigarettes. I'll leave that there. Um, so protesters um, have been demanding to defund the police as well, and they say, this is not it. So to help us with this conversation, I'm very happy to welcome back to Be Heard Talk, Candace Hollingsworth, who is the national chair of Our Black Party, which is an organization that exists to advance polit uh, a political agenda that addresses the needs of black people and pass a radically black agenda. Welcome back to the show, Candace. I think you were here with Dr. West, I think a week or two before Diddy backed our black party, uh, both financially and, you know, just by giving us, uh, sharing his platform. So happy to have you back. Same. I'm happy to be here. It's good to see you. Absolutely. So Candace, you know, I just gave a rundown of the George Floyd Policing Act. You know, we're hearing critics on both sides, but you released a statement praising the bill. Why do you support it? No. So I want to be clear. It's not a praise of the bill. This is an applause for um, congressional representatives for moving forward on legislation that is really important. Um, and um, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is not a response to what um, what Black communities, what protesters have been asking for for years. It is actually really just realizing the responsibility that um, federal government has in controlling the parameters by which their resources are received and used. Um, and so this is to say that, and I'm pretty sure you saw in the statement is that this is great. Um, we are happy to see that there was progress made and you guys continue to reintroduce this bill in this session, in this legislative session, um, and that you also passed um, HR1. But it's also important to recognize that the real pieces of legislation that are going to really move the needle for black communities is one, the Breathe Act, which is um, legislation that is sponsored by um, representatives uh, Presley and Slate, 
Um, and it's also important to recognize um, additional legis making sure that those pieces of legislation actually get introduced in the House and have some um, movement forward in the Senate. And I think that's gonna require a lot of will um, with Chuck Schumer, as well as the Democratic Caucus in the Senate to actually move forward on an equity agenda. Absolutely, Candace. And we're gonna really dig into uh, how much willpower it's gonna take to get this bill through the Senate without anything being negotiated. Before we do, I know Kadija left a comment via LinkedIn. Kadija says, police reform is needed. It's not a suggestion or something to be taken as a joke. Um, Kadija, I think that we 100% agree. And you know, the premise of this conversation is how do we make real reform? Um, I actually wanna throw it over to you, Evan, because you know, this bill falls very short of defunding the police. Um, you know, something that you've been advocating with advocating for with a number of, you know, millions of other people on the left. So is this true progress? Does it go far enough? It doesn't go far enough. It is progress. You know, if we're looking at this as a tree, it's not the roots, but it's some of the branches. It's not reconstructing the oppressive system that exists within American policing, but it is, and, and this is an important thing that Candace pointed out, a lot of lawmakers, even Democratic ones, would completely put this aside as a state issue. And now it's showing, okay, the federal government has to be involved in this. This is a human rights issue. So federal government has to do something to at least show in some way that they believe police should be held accountable. I do think it's a good step forward. I agree with something you said earlier. I mean, chokehold, it's almost like superficial at this point. Uh, George Floyd wasn't even killed with a chokehold. So that alone definitely isn't good, but enough. But uh, taking away qualified immunity, or at least reducing it, that's important because it allows for cops to be sued when they uh, have misconduct. But I agree Defunding the police looks like the BREATHE Act because that's, that's actually reallocating resources. And that's more what I like to call it. I like to call it innovating the police or restructuring because you're reallocating resources away from armed officers to community resources, schools, mental health professionals. That's what we need to happen. I know we are getting a lot of great comments. Let's go to Amari. Omari Lewis via LinkedIn says, I hope HR 40 provides evidence to defund and refund policing. So we are seeing some people who are all for defunding the police and reallocating those resources to our communities. Thank you so much, Omari. Um, Oni, I definitely want you want to get your comments as well. What was your reaction to uh, the George Floyd Policing Act? I think it's a step in the right direction, a good first step. But I think more needs to be done. I think that the police in general need reform and not only not on a, a local level, on a national level, federally, because we've seen in cases throughout the country that there is a problem within police departments and using excessive force and killing black and brown people, minorities. And this needs to be done on a federal level. Some type of legislation needs to be made federally to stop this and get this under control. I don't think that the local government, uh, all, the, all of the uh, pressure or all of it lies on the local government. I think the federal government has to step in and make those changes. 
Thank you so much for that, Oni. I know Michael R. Hassler left a comment via LinkedIn saying qualified immunity is the key to all of this. And I'm so glad that Michael chimed in there as well, because one of the bill's provisions does include qualified immunity, which shields law enforcement from certain lawsuits. However, my question, Candace, is will this provision uphold in the Senate or will it be compromised in order to get this bill passed? So I think there are a lot of things um, potentially in this bill that will likely, um, sadly, I don't think it'll see the light that it needs to see in the Senate. Um, and a couple of reasons why. One is that, and I want to kind of go back to something that, that we've just talked about a moment ago. The goal of this bill, which is clear by the way it was designed, is that it was not intended to although the public was led to believe, it was not intended to radically reform policing. Um, what it was intended to do was for congressional representatives in an election year to be able to respond in the moment in the ways that they felt that they could. And in responding in the ways they felt that they could, that meant that there was really not any room on their behalf, um, or at least they weren't willing to entertain room to really reimagine what it is that they can do as federal legislators to actually shape um, what community policing, what um, not community policing, what public safety looks like in communities. Um, and so now we're at a point where you have, where it's post-election, we're heading to midterms. And at this point, many many representatives are really heeding the call um, from President Biden around this call for unity. And I think, unfortunately, they mistake unity for agreement on all areas and the need to compromise wherever compromise might be possible. And I think they see issues of equity as areas for compromise, unfortunately. And so I think um, there will either be a significant stripping of important provisions. And these provisions, I want to add, are not, again, it is still imagining a system where law enforcement is a response. Um, it is not one that is a radical reimagining of, of community safety like the BREATHE Act. And so what this says is that, well, since we still have law enforcement as it exists now, what can we do? What, how do we control the ways that our funding is used? Okay, we'll put certain criteria in place so that those state agencies, those local agencies that receive money through our programs have to have certain things in place in order to receive those funds and also create programs so that grant programs so that they can implement some of the changes and requirements that we're asking for. And I want to say that on a local level, these things are actually really, really important because local agencies often rely significantly on federal grants to be able to um, to be able to support their activities. And they will respond very quickly to any new requirements or new regulations that are placed on them in order to receive those funds. Um, but at the same time in the Senate, I think we'll see stripping of provisions around quali qualified immunity. I think we'll see uh, watering down of requirements for grants, which might look like lengthening the time period um, that people might have to enact these provisions. Um, and, and most importantly, I think it's going to rely on folks like um, Senator Sinema, Senator Manchin, um, and now recently even some of those senators who are coming from communities where their only, their only 
view of public safety is around policing. Um, and we're going to see them really try to respond or respond to the interest that is law enforcement. And we have to recognize that as an interest, which is why it's important for Black folks to recognize that Black people have a vested interest in politics and that it's okay for us to vote our interests um, in politics and that we hold those um, mm -hmm. Democratic, Democratic representatives accountable for that. Uh, Candace, Aaron Rivers seems to agree with you. Via Facebook, he says, unfortunately, I don't think there's any way this gets passed in the Senate without compromise. We're going to need some executive orders and all the Dems to fight together in order to get this done. We agree. However, I also want to go to a comment from Mr. Uh, Gerardo. Mr. Gerardo left a comment saying, why would any normal person want to defund police? And then he left another comment saying, guess what? Your neighborhoods will see an increase in violence with less police. You know, we welcome political discourse. Evan, I actually want to throw it over to you. If you could actually address that quickly about defunding police. Actually, this goes to something I actually wanted to pitch to the panel, which is I, I think that so many people are just headline and clickbait oriented. So if you see defund the police, what you immediately think is exactly what that comment said. First of all, the, even defunding, even in the Breathe Act, there's, at, to my knowledge, no mention of eliminating the police. It's just a notion of who is a first responder and having people who are first responders, you know, not hold weapons, be people who can uh, be mediators in the community and just frankly be more qualified to deal with the situation if it's at a school, if it's a mental health issue. So I think that so many people don't even get to the understanding that defund the police is a reallocation of resources where they should go. And it's actually, another way I've heard it uses unburdening. It's taking things off the police's task list that they shouldn't be doing in the first place. They have no uh, business being the first responder at a, a mental health crisis when they have no training. They have no business doing half the traffic stuff that they do. They have no business being in a school. And that's giving them, as a police officer, extra work that they shouldn't have to do. So I think someone sees defund. They think of the police. By the way, in New York, we have I don't even know how much budget. We have so much budget for the police in New York. We go to Israel and train them, So, which is ridiculous. So people think defund, like the police won't have any money to afford their own weapons, and then crime will go all over the place, where it's really making public safety be more accurate with the people who should be responding first and giving them money to do their job so everyone will be safer. Thank you for that, Evan. And, and yeah, obviously, just to clarify, you know, defunding police does not mean less police and less safe communities. It means, again, you know, reallocating those resources um, so that our communities are more safe and that we're not overtasking police to do minor things. Um, you know, so thank you for that, that great explanation. Only, you know, I have a question because not all of us um, are, are all for defunding the police. A lot of us aren't there yet. Um, where do you stand when it comes to the solution? You know, is it defunding, abolishing, or just overhauling policing incrementally? What, what's your stance on that? I think it's defunding for sure. I think that we need to look at how to relocate 
uh, resources within police departments. Like it's just too much money going into our police departments throughout the country. And those resources and that money, those finances can be used to things that can be used for things that are way more impactful uh, within our community, schools, uh, food, uh, just so many different things that I feel like those resources can be used towards and they don't necessarily have to be used entirely uh, within police departments. A lot of people here defunding the police and they just assume that we're, that means taking away police officers or taking away uh, weapons and that these our communities will no longer be safe. And as to exactly what Evan said, you can see that that's just relocating those uh, resources and those expenses, honestly. And I'm definitely here for it. I think that we're that's a great step that we need to make um, in order to reduce a lot of injustice that has been going on with police. Thank you for that, Oni. And Evan, I know you have a question, but before we do, I definitely want you, Candace, to chime in. Where do you stand? Are you calling for the defunding of police, abolishing, or overhauling? And if you can also explain the difference between us three, because we're, you know, those three, because we hear a lot of this rhetoric right now. <laughs> so I think it's really important that we take the focus or we put the focus back on community safety. Um, and that when we're talking about defund police, I think, you know, I, I am in 100% support of that because I do believe that many of our, um, the things that we call police to do as a first responder um, are things that really our communities should be in, invested in ways to be able to respond to. So that might be youth centers, that might be um, supporting recreation, that might mean supporting mental health services, a variety of things that might have nothing to do with assuming that a person um, is a miscreant for any, for lack of a better word. Um, it's just about creating a livable and better community. Then when you're talking about abolition, that is saying that we see a a future where there is not a need for law enforcement in the way that we've ever seen it before. Um, what that means is that there are ways, there are things put in place for communities to be safe, for people to um, seek justice for crimes and harms against them. That doesn't put the average person into harm's way on their own because you have um, individuals out there with the power of the law in their hands. Um, and then overhauling, it's, it's like you really can't, seek abolition without understanding or being able to think about the possibility of overhauling law enforcement. And I think a lot of people who, um, you know, get a bit uptight about the phrase defund police is because their mind is really only limited to the viewpoint that they currently have about what community safety is. And they don't see any other outlet or resource for being able to make them safe. So for example, officers, they may say, well, I can't, you know, how are we supposed to do our jobs if you're defunding police? Well, what we're saying is the job that you're currently doing is not the one that you should be doing. And so the question really is, well, what job do I do? If you know when 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 police are defunded, or when we when we stop investing, um, putting a priority on our resources in law enforcement, rather than look, putting a priority on people. And I think the other thing that folks really have to understand is that in many communities across the country, policing is the single largest budget expense. And when you think about the connection between law enforcement and property taxes and also community safety and property values and what that means for places, for creating a livable community for black people, my goodness, the possibilities are limitless. DC is expensive because of its budget, because of property taxes. 
And so when you think about the affordability of communities as a result of re, you know, shifting our priorities, reimagining and overhauling law enforcement and community safety, and truly putting the power of creating safe and livable communities back into the hands of people. Kansas, thank you so much. Super well said. Um, Deborah Green left a comment, you know, which is adjacent to the conversation we're having. She says mental health money will go towards professionals dealing with the issue instead of police, which is exactly what we're saying. We don't need police handling and mishandling all of these issues. Evan, I'll throw it to you. Yeah, what I want to, this is really a question to everyone else. What I want to ask is if if significant uh, overhaul and change is comes down to coalitions. And there's a word that is clearly a roadblock to those coalitions like defund. If the tenets are still there, if a majority of people would still agree with mental health going, f being first responders and more resources towards things that a community actually needs and making the police jobs more efficient and less violent and the police not going where they need to be. Is, is there any reason maybe to rethink what we call that movement? This actually came about when uh, Obama said that he didn't like the term defund the police, but what people didn't focus on as much as after he said that, he actually did say he supports mental health professionals going to the scene. So I, I wonder, even though I completely agree with it, if how much do we think changing some of the terminology around it matters to building a broader coalition that still supports the main tenets of that movement? Candace? Yeah, yeah. So those are the, that's the type of argument, and I understand that's not coming from you, Evan, but <laughs> that's the type of argument that really gets on my nerves. And it is one of those things where you got to be the right type of black or a polite type of black in order, black person in order to um, in order to get your point across. And it it really demonstrates the weaknesses of coalitions. And black power, Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton say that, that when you're talking about coalitions that are formed from the basis of where you are no longer the person in power, that is not a coalition in your interest. And it is important to recognize that if people are hung up, if the goal is equity and the goal is fairness and the goal is justice, whatever you call it really should not matter. People should be aligned on the end goal. And it seems to me that it's more of a concern about the messenger of the word and what they think it means rather than a commitment to what they are saying they desire for um, American people and more specifically for black people in this country. Um, you know, Candace, great argument, but Michael R. Hassler uh, says he disagrees via LinkedIn. He says words matter. And yeah, he said words matter. And then he also says, eliminate the defund terminology. Um, I, I'll say, and I'll just chime in really quickly because I, I do think that the way we brand something um, matters. And I do feel like a lot of us um, who are a little older, I'm talking about my mom's generation, the boomers, those in middle America, those who are white, they agree with the principles but defund the police is so scary to them. Now I stand with you, Candace, but I do think that in order to conjure up support, um, more support, especially in the Senate, maybe we should turn, you know, change the terminology. 
And I think that's where organizations like Moving for Black Lives and those and those protesters that help bring defund and abolition to the current discourse. I think what they what they are telling us is that we come from this from a position of power. That if you come from a position where this is what our community is demanding and what we want, um, our obligation one is to see that through. The other obligation is to get everyone on the same page. And so I think even when we're talking about defund, I don't think our goal should be in how do we get a progressive white movement to be a coalition partner? How do we get um, you know, other advocates and other racial ethnic groups in LGBTQ groups, whatever the coalition might be based on? It's not a goal of getting them on board. Our goal and our obligation is getting Black people on board because I know for a fact, we've seen it before, that when we lead coalitions based on what we need and what we demand for our communities, um, that's that's where we have success. So I agree that there are certainly folks, especially generational gaps, that don't necessarily um, under, fully understand and embrace the phrase and the terminology. And I think that's where instead of talking about what do we call it, it's about, okay, let me let me help you understand, Ma. This is, when we say this, this is what we mean. So we need you to say it with us, but understand what we're talking about. Now, I, I think that's more of what we do as community work and right. as people who are trying to lead, a, lead, help lead the voices of protests into power where, where they belong. It's our job to make sure that we meet those calls and that we make sure everyone is educated on what we're talking about within our community. Oni, what's your take on this? I think that the word defund is a trigger. Um, so I could I could understand that side of the story. I do get both sides. However, I think I had a question for Candace. It was that, do we believe that if we don't, if we, let's just say we change the name, we don't use defund or we use some other type of um, language. Um, are we not going to need that support of other groups, not only Black people? Are we going to need support from Republicans? Are we going to need support from those boomers? And how does the word defund, how is that going to impact that support? I think and and I guess that's where I'm coming from is that their support isn't because of the word or their lack of support isn't about the word. There's been so much conversation in the past year about what defund actually means. It reminds me of the conversation or the years long conversations that we had about what Black Lives Matter meant and how long it took for even Black folks, especially Black elected officials to feel comfortable saying Black Lives Matter. And so I think we're in that moment um, where it's it's going, I think, where we hold firm to what the spirit and the intent of the of the language means and work diligently to get other people to recognize that this is a path towards liberation. And that part of the liberation means freeing yourself from the notion that we have to be able to be more palatable to other people who are simply not wedded to the ideals of equity. Uh, LinkedIn user left a comment. Um, LinkedIn says, equity and fairness is the goal. Defund is exactly what needs to be done. Understand the meaning, learn what it means instead of attacking the word, change your mindset, people. Thank you so much for that comment from the LinkedIn user. I do want to keep the conversation going because, you know, we, we started off talking about George Floyd. We kind of 
detoured a little bit to talk about defunding police, which is an issue that, you know, a topic definitely that deserves a spotlight. However, you know, the murder trial of Derek Chauvin begins tomorrow, Candace um, and, and uh, Evan Oney. I want to get your, your thoughts on, number one, will Derek Chauvin, you know, be convicted as we are fighting to change law enforcement we still have this epic trial that is about to uh, uh, start. Um, Candace, what are your thoughts on him getting, getting convicted? You know, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> I don't, um, I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be one. Um, but I think the most important part of this case um, begins tomorrow, which is in the jury selection. And I think we have to remember that we are all supposed to be tried by a jury of our peers. And so, especially given that this case has created such um, national and global angst um, that it will be really hard to find anyone who's been living under a rock for the past year, one. Um, and I think it's gonna, we're, we're going to see um, the possibility of people coming to this a far more uneducated, not in terms of academics, but just around how they've shaped their opinions about the past year and what they felt was the value of protest and the different sides that they're going to go to. And understand that the defense is, their, their job is to try to get a you know success for their client. And so I think the jury selection is gonna be one that is probably um, far more moderate than we would definitely want to see victory, but I'm keeping on to hope um, that we will see a path for conviction. But um, quite honestly, the, the laws that have been in place to date um, have not, been as supportive of as, as they need to be in seeking justice for lives lost. Oni, um, do you expect civil unrest? Do you expect to see more protests once this trial kicks off? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that even within this trial, yes, this is the start of the jury selection begins tomorrow, but I do believe that we're we're possibly not going to see a conviction. We've seen this story countless time after time where police are killing innocent black and brown people and they're not uh, being reprimanded for their actions. Maybe they're losing their job, that's about it. They're not in the court of uh, law. They're not being convicted for the crimes that they have committed. Um, I would like to keep hope and hope that maybe, you know, this time will be different because of all the national and global uh, media um, attention that the case have gotten. But truly, that's what I believe. I believe that he's not going to be convicted. Which is so sad. It, it, we watched a man, you know, murder somebody uh, for nearly nine minutes. And, and it's so sad that we still don't have any faith in this justice system. I mean, you know, it was 30 years ago around this time where Rodney King was also beaten on camera and then all the police officers were acquitted. You know, so it, it's really sad. We're going to have to see see how this thing plays out. Um, but, you know, you know, Evan, as we begin to start to wrap up this conversation, um, I, I believe it was both you and Candace who called for uh, the BREVE Act. And we're advocating very heavily for the BREVE Act. Which is, I, I think that's something that we definitely need to put more focus on. Uh, I do think the George Floyd policing bill is a step forward, but it's the BREVE Act, which is the most comprehensive criminal legal passage in the history of the United States, uh, which calls for investments in gainful employment, 
quality housing and pilots for universal basic income. Evan, what needs to be done so that we can pass the Breathe Act and other, you know, life-changing huge overhauls like the Breathe Act? Yeah, and one thing I forgot to mention earlier about uh, the George Floyd bill, if it were to pass as it is, I believe it also includes um, at least a federal prohibition for certain federal investigations on no-knock warrants, which as we know is how Breonna Taylor was murdered. So that is an important part of this current bill. Um, what needs to happen, it's something Candace mentioned many times, it's education. People need to be educated on what this bill would be, especially with a lot of the positives. I mean, there's many positives in it, but it's more jobs. It's can have economic benefits. It strengthens communities. It reallocates police where they should be and doesn't give police tasks that they shouldn't be doing in the first place. It, I look at it as efficiency. I think it's making the right people go to the right place. Everybody likes to complain about bureaucracy. When the right people go to the right place, it saves lives, this can save money, and it saves time. It's more efficient to have the the professionals be where they should be as first responders. So, and it creates jobs. So I think it's all in how we educate people. Thank you for that. And Oni, you know, what would you say would be part of the solution here in getting real justice and change? Like both Candace and Evan said, I think it's education for sure. I think that we need to take a step back and uh, figure out how we're relocating, how we're uh, re, how we're using our resources, and allocate them to different things: mental health, to communities, to schools, food, food pantries. We we have food deserts in a lot of inner communities, um, inner city communities, um, and I think that a lot of resources that we have been uh, using and utilizing um, for police department for things that entirely do not matter, need to be allocated back to black and brown communities. Thank you for that, Oni. And Kenneth, I'll give you the last word here uh, about the solutions, because, you know, I'm all for radical change. I'm all for passing that black agenda that the, our black party is pushing for. How do we actually do that within the next four years under the Biden administration? Yeah. So under the Biden administration, when we're looking to the federal pathway to do that, it is really um, taking advantage of a political moment. And that political moment right now is that Sen Senator Schumer is afraid of a challenge for um, his seat from Senator Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and so that means putting the pressure on Senator Schumer to exhaust every possible resource to pave the way for all of the, all of the bills related to Biden's equity agenda, which include the Breathe Act, which includes George Floyd Justice Policing, which includes HR1, which includes a federal jobs guarantee, all making the path for all of those items to clear is squarely within his purview. He has the he has the power to be able to make that happen, and I think we can con we can continue to put the pressure on him through the court of public opinion um, that that is what he needs to do. And then on a local pathway, it is important for communities to recognize that we have power in how we were how we are governed. Um, you can look at the Breathe Act; they are seeking community sponsors. Sign on as a community sponsor and work with your local elected officials to pass element, if not the entire pieces of it 
past elements of the um, of the Breathe Act, past certain requirements that while you have um, law enforcement in the way that it currently exists, past those um, laws and regulations and policies at a local level that do what the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act are requiring you to do, but that you have the authority to go ahead and do on your own. So I think there are m multiple avenues to start seeing a reality that is very different. Um, and we're going to be working with communities um, to be able to realize all of that. Thank you for that, Candace, And thank you so much for showing up to Be Her Talk today. We appreciate your time and also the work you're doing on the ground to push our culture, our, our communities forward. Thank you so much. And I'll just end by saying this. You know, lawmakers have failed to secure a $15 federal minimum wage, right? They're, they failed to really protect us against COVID. And they've been failing our communities for generations and decades on end. But to Candace's point, we have a moment right now. And it's us to it's up to us to remain diligent. You know, a lot of us we were protesting. We were in the streets in 2020. Uh, my question is, how many times have you protested, petitioned, or advocated for change in 2021? Now that we have Biden in the White House and a black woman in the White House, that does not give us leverage to let up. In fact, it should only motivate us more to make sure that they meet our demands because we're the ones who elected them in. So we have to continue to push for radically, you know, uh, radical change like the Breathe Act. Uh, we need to push for investing uh, in our communities. That would actually alleviate political, uh, no, police violence and help us to build sustainable neighborhoods. That's what we need. We don't need more policing. What we need is resources. What we need is jobs. And what we need is education. And if you want to support all these initiatives, you can do so by supporting our Black Party. Again, this is a political organization co-founded by Candace and, and, some, and some other great people that are pushing for a Black agenda that represents exactly what our communities need. And you can also support this change by supporting us here at Be Heard Talk. In fact, if you go to buymeacoffee.com slash Be Heard Talk and leave a small donation and, and support us, we will continue to support the issues and causes that mean the most to you. On that note, I want to say goodbye. I want to say thank you to everyone who chimed in and tuned into today. And we will be back next Sunday. So we'll see you then.